The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we open the Word of Truth this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship and prepared for the teaching of God's Word through the use of 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, If we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse or purify us from all wrongdoing. So that means that at the instant that we admit our sins to God the Father, when we're out of fellowship, we're instantly restored to fellowship, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, so that we can then go forward in the spiritual life, so that we can learn the Word of God, take in doctrine under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to get gathered this morning to study your word, to reflect upon all that you have provided for us, to reflect upon the ways that you have given us to solve the problems in our lives and the difficulties that we might uh, live a life that honors and glorifies you, that we might avoid the stress that uh, we bring ourselves into as a result of human viewpoint techniques of handling problems in life. Now, Father, as we look at your word and continue this study, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the middle of a study on impersonal or unconditional love, as per Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, although we are not particularly studying that text this morning. That is the passage where we started. Now, the reason we've taken some time out for this study is because love is one of those subjects that is so often misunderstood, so uh, poorly applied, and is so crucial to the spiritual life. We read here in verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor... As yourself, we have seen that this is a quote from Leviticus 19:18, and that is a passage in the Old Testament that is uh, more frequently quoted in the New Testament than almost any other Old Testament quotation. So that stresses its importance and significance. It is a mandate that we find not only in the Mosaic Law, but we also find Jesus reiterating it in Luke chapter six, and we also have Paul reiterating it. In Romans, Galatians, and then James states it in James 2.8 where he calls it the royal law because this is the law that is to govern the spiritual life of the church-age believer. It was exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ when he was on earth, when he demonstrated and set the precedent for the spiritual life for the church age. And when Jesus was teaching his disciples the night before he went to the cross, he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. 
So automatically this takes us into a whole new level of understanding love, far beyond anything that the Old Testament envisioned in, in the original context of Leviticus. And we studied that original context, and we saw a number of things there that primarily in the Old Testament, because their spiritual life was not based on the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament they did not have the indwelling or the filling of the Holy Spirit. They only had what we call the um, endowment of the Holy Spirit. And that was a temporary ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to only a small minority of, of uh, Old Testament saints. And it was primarily related to leadership within the theocratic kingdom. For example, the craftsmen, the jewelers, the silversmiths, the carpenters who were involved in the construction of the tabernacle were filled with the Spirit. It was, I mean, endued with the Spirit. It was a temporary endowment to give them that ability and wisdom or skill in designing the tabernacle. Uh, the kings, priests, prophets also had this temporary endowment. It could be lost. Saul lost it because of his extended carnality. David prayed that he would not lose it, but he did not. It could, cannot be lost. In, the filling cannot be lost in the New Testament. The filling is permanent, or excuse me, the, the indwelling is permanent. The filling is temporary. One thing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament before we go on, and that is that it was not related to their spiritual life. It wasn't even related to the spiritual life of the prophets, priests, and kings who were endued with the Holy Spirit. Their spiritual life was based on the faith rest drill. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was just designed to give them wisdom within their theocratic leadership function. It wasn't designed to give them a spiritual life comparable to what we have in the church age. The spiritual life of the church age is indeed unique, and it is a spiritual life or that is the product uniquely of God the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're going in the coming verses where we get into the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit coming up later in this chapter. And there we will see that the first fruit of the Spirit is love. So this is something that is uniquely produced in the life of the believer as a result of spiritual growth. You don't go out necessarily and say, okay, today I'm going to be loving. I don't care what that person does today. I'm going to do it. Because therein, I think, lies the path of defeat. I think most of us have tried that at some point, and we realize the defeat. I see more and more as I mature in my own spiritual life and study the Word that this is the production of the Spirit, not the production necessarily of, of my volition, although I'm not saying that our volition is not involved. Our volition is involved in the dynamic of learning the Word of God and applying it. It's the Holy Spirit who matures us. The analogy is that as you sit down to eat a meal, you take in physical nourishment and you take that bite of food and you put it in your mouth, all that activity is volitional until you swallow it. After you swallow, swallow the food, involuntary reflexes take over. The, the muscles in the esophagus take the food into the stomach where acids, various stomach acids are secreted that break down the food and the digestion process takes place where the chemicals in the food are broken down and transferred and absorbed into the bloodstream where they are further carried out to provide uh, nourishment for the cell structure of the body. That is applicational. At that point you have 
applicational energy. What you do with it from that point on is another act of your volition to apply that energy. You go work out, you play sports, you exercise your mind in some way. That's analogous to what happens in the spiritual life. We come to church, you come to Bible class, you put a tape in the tape recorder, and you sit down under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. You start taking in the Word of God. And we have described that as the grace learning spiral, where the pastor teacher teaches you, and then under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, he makes that understandable as pneumaticos doctrine. Then it continues to cycle towards the soul. Now, the mentality of the soul is comprised of two spheres. The inner sphere is called the cardia. The outer sphere is called the noose in the Greek, the mind and the heart. The heart is not emotion. The heart is thinking. Under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, it becomes understandable, and you exercise positive volition to understand it. Just because the Holy Spirit makes it understandable does not mean we automatically understand it. We have to think about it, what the Old Testament calls meditation. We have to figure it out, make sure we truly do understand what we have been taught, and then it enters into the noose, the outer lobe of the mentality of the soul, as gnosis, doctrine. This is academically understood doctrine. Then we have to exercise positive volition again. When it cycles, when we believe it, under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and we believe it as an exercise of positive volition, God the Holy Spirit transfers it into the inner lobe of the soul where it becomes epinosis doctrine, that is, applicational or usable doctrine. This process... After we exercise our volition, that's like eating food. The process of the transference, assimilation, or metabolization of doctrine at this point is the result of the Holy Spirit. Just as after we swallow food, involuntary reflexes take over to break it down and then to transfer that out into the bloodstream, the cell structure of the body so that it becomes usable, the Holy Spirit does the same thing. Then we have to exercise our volition in another way to apply that doctrine, that epinosis doctrine that has become usable. And we do that through the exercise of the ten stress busters that build that soul fortress. Now we have looked at this, we've seen that here's the soul, and when we apply doctrine, we construct a fortress around the soul to protect us from the onslaught of adversity. It begins with confession, 1 John 1, 9, that restores the filling of the Holy Spirit, who is the power of the spiritual life. Second stress buster is the filling of the Holy Spirit. The third is the faith rest drill. The fourth is grace orientation, and then the fifth is doctrinal orientation. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, as we master these first five problem-solving devices or stress busters, we advance from spiritual infancy through spiritual childhood because these basic skills, confession, the filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation are foundational for everything else in the spiritual life. And just as you learn skill in whatever professional field you may be in, whether you're a carpenter whether you're a bricklayer, whether you're an accountant, you have to learn certain skills 
and you had to learn certain skills and practice them over and over and over again in order to become proficient in whatever it is you do as a job or career. That same thing is true in the spiritual life. We have to volitionally choose to exercise these skills. And that's what erects and builds that soul fortification, strengthens or edifies, the Scripture says, our soul. The Old Testament talks about God being our fortress, God being our bulwark, our shield, our defense. This is the process by which that takes place. Then we come to the transitional stress buster, a personal sense of our eternal destiny, which is which characterizes spiritual adolescence. And once we master that, we move into spiritual adulthood where we have personal love for God the Father, impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind, and then occupation with Christ. Once we move through spiritual adulthood, these three stages of spiritual adulthood, then we have experienced the inner happiness, the perfect happiness that God has for us. So those are the ten stress busters, and we're focused on these right now because this works together. They work in common. It is the love, what I call the love triplex. Now, what undergirds it is personal love for God the Father because that's what provides the virtue in our soul. For love is virtue dependent. For love to have any value whatsoever, it must be based on virtue, and that comes from a relationship with God the Father. So our Love for all mankind is based, first of all, on personal love for God the Father and motivated by that. And that is exemplified according to passages which we saw in Deuteronomy and in the Gospels in John. That is exemplified by our obedience to doctrine. Now, these are advanced Skills. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're a spiritual baby, you can't have a certain level of personal love for God the Father or that you can't have impersonal love for mankind at some level. You can. But you won't really start seeing these skills kick in and you won't be able to really see them or begin to master them until you have some spiritual growth behind you because these are very difficult. I think this is the hardest thing for us, and this is why I think many believers start falling away when they reach about this stage, trying to understand the dynamics of our eternal destiny and how that impacts our decision-making today is tough for a lot of people. They just can't quite grow up. The same thing is true for a lot of people uh, normally emotionally. How many people do we know that still haven't gotten past emotional adolescence? But we won't go there right now. Uh, the same is true in the spiritual life. They bail out because they just can't handle the responsibilities of spiritual adulthood. And that really demands consistency in taking in the Word of God. And what happens usually at this stage is all of those initial questions that you had when you were a baby believer. You wanted to find out what the Bible said about this and what the Bible said about that. And you were concerned about prophecy and the rapture and millennialism and all of these other things which are part of the Word of God and they are important, but after you've got your basic questions answered, then now you're no longer stimulated and motivated by that intellectual curiosity. And that's when a lot of people think, oh, I've answered my questions, I can explain the gospel, I've arrived, and they just sit back, and then they fall apart. Next thing you know, they're in all sorts of uh, carnality, and they're backslidden, and they're never at Bible class anymore, and you wonder what happened to them. 
and you find out that they just didn't have enough motivation to get past spiritual adolescence and into spiritual adulthood. Now, we have seen in our study that the mandate for unconditional love, the mandate described here in verse 14 of Galatians 5, is given in every dispensation. So we took the time to go back and look at some crucial passages that give us a better understanding of what this means for us. And we went to Luke 6, Luke 6:27. So let's turn there. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And even though I think at this point in my study there's a lot of debate even among dispensationalists and solid dispensational scholars about the exact application of Luke 6 and the Sermon on the Mount to the present age, I don't want to get into that, and I still have a lot of study and a lot of questions I need to resolve in my own mind before we start teaching that subject. But nevertheless, there is much here that can still be applied, just as there is much in the Old Testament that is applied in the church age, even though it is directed primarily to Israel. There is much that can be applied in the Sermon on the Mount to the church age, even though its primary thrust might be to the millennial kingdom. Luke 6, verse 27. Jesus is going to define for us what he means by love. This goes beyond the Old Testament. In the Old Testament passage of, of Luke 19, we saw that primarily that is exemplified as an absence of mental attitude sins. The worst thing you can do in any relationship, whether it's a relationship between friends, acquaintances, whether it's a business relationship, or whether it's a marriage relationship, is to harbor any kind of resentments over any kind of real or perceived rejection. Now, we did a study a while back on rejection in James 2, and I don't have time to repeat that right now, but if you want to learn about rejection, then you need to get that tape. But the problem today is we see people who either go through real rejection or perceived rejection, and they start reacting emotionally. And as soon as they get into that scenario of rejection... They start operating on various human viewpoint techniques of solving the problem. Now, that can come under the guise of, of overt sin, which is a production of the sin nature from the area of weakness, or it can come under the guise of morality and religiosity and all kinds of... Uh, and, and cloak though that vindictiveness in the aura of, of doing good. And this happens often, you see this tragically, in many marriages and you see one or the other spouse come in and they're able to justify a lot of reaction that they have because of the uh, bad behavior, inappropriate behavior, or sinful behavior of the spouse. They're, he's done this to me or she's done that to me, so I'm justified in this. And now they've given themselves over. Remember, as soon as you quit using any of the spiritual skills, the stress busters, you're immediately converting that outside pressure of adversity into sin nature control of the soul. And once you're in the sin nature control of the soul and you're motivated by the lust patterns for revenge motivation or mental attitude sins such as bitterness and anger and resentment, then you're in trouble. You're going to destroy your own spiritual life. And I think that the sum, in, a, in a very simple way, the Old Testament can be summarized as saying, that for you to love your neighbor as yourself means the absence of mental attitude sins. But in the New Testament, it goes beyond that. That's the starting point. When you're a young believer, 
a new believer, and you want to start applying the skill of impersonal love, then you have to really watch yourself and to see when and if you are uh, have a tendency or a lust, or that happens to be your, your trend or your sin nature, to, to respond to rejection or perceived rejection with jealousy, bitterness, uh, hostility, anger. And if, if so, then you need to start dealing with that through the use of rebound. Now, that sometimes that means that every 30 seconds you're in a situation where you have to confess your sins again to get back in fellowship. But it puts your focus on the fact that you need to uh, deal with that area of the sin nature. Now, when we get into Luke 6, there's a number of questions that usually occur to many people when we try to apply this. I think the bottom line on understanding or interpreting this passage is Jesus is not talking about national relationships. Jesus is not talking about dealing with a scenario of criminal activity. Jesus is talking about just personal relationships between two people. Fundamentally, you could summarize much of this by saying two wrongs don't make a right. It doesn't matter what someone else might do to you, it never justifies your response in inappropriate behavior, mental attitude, sins, or overt sins. We, are all, we live in an era now that is dominated by the word victims. And you always hear people talk about, I'm a victim of this, and they want to go back and blame their parents for one thing, or blame their parents or their school teacher or somebody for another thing. And in a real sense, we're all victims. So if we're all victims, then victimization means nothing. We're all victims. I hate using that word, but what I mean by that is Adam made a bad decision in the Garden of Eden. And as a result of his bad decision, we're all living in a fallen world. We live, we have a sin nature, and that creates incredible trauma for us. We don't need demons to make life tough for us. Our sin nature is capable of the most incredible evil possible. The Old Testament says that the heart is evil and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And that's referring to you, and that's referring to me. And that never changes till the day we die, even though at regeneration, that power of the sin nature is broken. It's in terms of it's in slavery of us. We're no longer slaves to the sin nature. It still is just as evil as it always was. Now, people always forget that and they want to idealize things, but we're basically living. We are sinners. We have our own sin nature, and we're living with sinners. Everybody we live with, everybody we associate with, our spouses, our children, our parents are all fallen creatures. And because of that, they're going to disappoint us, hurt us. We're going to go through rejection. We're going to go through a certain amount of people testing. And it always seems to be the worst when it involves somebody very close to us. But what Scripture says is that we have a way of resolving that adversity in a way that it is not converted to stress in the soul. And that's what impersonal love is all about. It avoids the, the stress from people testing. That doesn't mean you're not going to go through that. It doesn't mean you're not going to have to deal with rejection. It does. And in the second hour, we're going to see a scenario where our Lord dealt with it within the family. And we're going to see how he handled it. But we have to look at these things. We have to realize that this is reality. And some people may not have the same test, the same difficulties in one arena as we do. But we all go through these tests and we all have to deal with, with other fallen creatures at times who just don't conform to the way we think things ought to be. 
And oftentimes it's very hurtful, it's very painful. I think perhaps the most difficult thing is in a marriage, especially when one spouse is negative and the other is positive, because that really calls for a heightened level of impersonal love and a lot of wisdom to know just how to deal with the situation. And, of course, that only comes through advance in the spiritual life. Now, Jesus is talking about a scenario of of personal involvement here. He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now, in the context, uh, Jesus has called the disciples and he is getting ready to send them out. So, in an immediate context, it's dealing with the whole principle of rejection and hostility to the gospel. It says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So now we've moved beyond a view of impersonal love or application that involves just an absence of mental attitude sins, which is sort of a passive idea, and just controlling your own thought life and not, not responding or reacting to that person in and uh, with mental attitude sins, but now we ha- Jesus is adding something positive to it. Not only are you not going to react with mental attitude sins, but you are going to do good. You are going to do something positive. You are going to be initiating in the direction of those who are rejecting you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now, a question that should occur to you here is, does this prevent self-defense? Is that what Jesus is talking about? No, it's not. Jesus is not a fool. But Jesus is talking specifically to disciples before they go out in, in, on a missionary endeavor, and he's talking about how they're going to respond to rejection. And they're not going to respond in kind to rejection. They're not going to get involved in petty responses. But he is not, and he never does, argue against self-defense. In fact, I want you to hold your place here and turn over a few chapters to Luke 22 and see how Jesus handles a situation just prior to going to the cross. This takes place the night before he goes to the cross as they're preparing to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, antagonism is running high in Jerusalem. There are a number of people who, at this stage who have reacted to Jesus and his teaching among the religious leaders. And Jesus wants to be in control of the situation. Now, one of the things that normally happens when you talk about impersonal love and you talk about the fact that when you look at these verses, people think, well, that means that I just let people do whatever they want to to me. No, that's false. In fact, I think only our generation, because of the self-absorption that our culture is rife with, produces that kind of question. I don't see that kind of question historically from other cultures and other times in history. But we live in a self-absorbed, culture that wants to assert personal rights. And I hear that, I've heard that question a lot. Every time I teach on this, and I've heard others teach on this, there is that tendency to respond that way in our generation. And I can only attribute it to the fact that we do seem to be a self-absorbed generation emphasizing our own, our own rights and our own efforts. 
Jesus is not talking about that. When Jesus looks at his life, he has a goal, he has a mission. Because he understands God's plan for his life, he is operating from a position of strength. Therefore, he is not just going to let everybody do to him whatever they want to do to him. He has to get to the cross. He can't let anything block God's plan for his life. So look how he responds in Luke 22:35. He's talking to the disciples. He says, When I sent you out without purse and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? That's referring back to some of the times he sent them out, as in Luke 6. They were to take nothing with them, and everything would be provided for them on the way. And they said, and their response, no, nothing. We never lacked anything. Verse 36. And he said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along. In other words, there's going to be a dispensational shift here, and that means that you have to handle the situation differently. Now, let him who has a purse take it along, likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. Self-defense. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now this is a great passage to go to. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to, basically the scenario is, I've got to get to the cross. The prophecy says I'm numbered with the transgressors. That has to be fulfilled. I'm operating from a position of strength, and not just anyone can come and arrest me. If anyone comes to arrest me that I don't want to arrest me, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. Therefore, we're going to go armed. But when the right people come to arrest me, we're not going to resist. We have to be in control of the situation to make sure we get where I'm supposed to go. Now, this says a lot about impersonal love because Jesus is in the midst of rejection, but he's not being a doormat. He's not being walked on. He's not just letting anybody use and abuse him. He is in control of the situation, and why can he do this and operate from a position of strength? Because he understands who he is in the plan of God And operating from a position of strength and spiritual maturity, he knows exactly how to handle the situation. And the same thing is true for us as well. Now let's turn back to Luke chapter 6. This is not necessarily a scenario or application that we utilize every time the same way. It depends on the situation, and we see that with our Lord. And we'll see a number of examples of that as we continue our study of John in in the second hour. Now, Jesus defines impersonal love in verse 31. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Now, that revolutionizes the whole concept from the Old Testament. Now, there's something new in this, and that has to do with uh, initiation and something positive in the direction of those who are in the process of rejecting us. Verse 33 defines that even further. He says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? I mean, that's not a great example of your love for other people when they're treating you well and you respond to them with kindness and generosity and goodness. Verse 34, 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Why? Personal sense of your eternal destiny. Your reward will be great. You're living today in light of eternity. The issue is not who wins the argument. The issue is not who gets their way. The issue is obedience to the mandates of Christ, avoiding stress in the soul and sin nature, control of the soul, with your eye on eternity and your advance to spiritual maturity. Jesus summarizes in, verse, in chapter 13 of John. He says in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. So the model is Christ's love for us. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now another question, two more questions that I think usually are asked in the midst of this study. The, second, the first one we asked, which was the issue of self-defense. And that was solved by Luke 22:35. The second is, does this mean that there are no consequences for wrong, illegitimate, or inappropriate behavior? You see, Jesus says if someone uh, takes from you or steals from you or hits you on the cheek, does that mean that there are no consequences? That you just let people get away with wrong behavior? No, it doesn't. Jesus clearly doesn't do that in his own life. And it doesn't mean that, but that means that you do not violate the, either the natural process of law, you don't take the law into your own hands through vigilantism, or do you step in and take God's role and say, well, this person has treated me this way and I'm going to get back at them and handle the situation. Remember, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. We have to take these scenarios and put them in the hands of the Lord and in the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven and let Him deal with it. And he will, in his way, in the best way, and we may not even know what's involved. And if you have a tendency or a trend towards uh, vindictiveness, the Lord probably won't let you know, because uh, then they'll just feed your own vindictiveness. So the Lord will keep it quiet, but rest assured, the Lord will deal with the problem, and he can deal with it a lot better than we can. The thing is, we just have to have the patience to let the Lord handle it. Third question regards a term I used last week, which is vulnerability. Now, a lot of people misunderstand what it means to be vulnerable. That does not necessarily mean that you are always taken advantage of. Jesus, in one sense, allowed things to happen to him, but the Lord's never taken advantage of. The Lord always handles the situation eventually. There is divine discipline, there is divine punishment, there is always and eventually justice from the Supreme Court of Heaven. So no one ever really gets away with anything. We think sometimes that we get away with sin because the Lord's, obviously the Lord's going to forgive us, but the Lord's also going to discipline us, and we never get away with a thing. But in the context, we're talking about witnessing. In any endeavor of human relationship, we are going to experience a certain amount of rejection. You explain the gospel to someone. You explain the gospel to a family member, a friend, a co-worker, somebody you hardly know, you run the risk of, rejecting, of rejection. They'll not only reject the gospel, but may, they may impugn your intelligence for believing the gospel. 
if you uh, are involved with any, anything at work, you do a job and somebody doesn't like it, you can be criticized. There can be other people who criticize you. You can come under just or unjust criticism from an employer. We all face situations in which we are going to uh, experience rejection. You can't avoid being vulnerable at points. The issue is that our protection is up to the Lord, whether we're talking about an emotional situation, a spiritual situation, or a physical situation. It is the Lord who is our bulwark and our defense. And that's why we have to learn to hide behind or stay protected by the doctrine that protects us. This is our soul fortress. And the only solution to life's problems is by using the stress busters as outlined in the Word of God. The fundamental issue in impersonal love is don't react with mental attitude sins. The worst thing you can do is get involved in bitterness and vindictiveness and hatred and anger and revenge motivation because that will destroy you and will do nothing to the other person. They won't even care. But it will eat away your soul and destroy your spiritual life. Now, we went through Leviticus 19.18 and we examined everything that was there and we've looked at Luke chapter 6. Now we need to look at the characteristics of impersonal love, especially as they're expressed in salvation. Remember, Jesus said that we are to love one another even as he has loved us. So what are these characteristics of impersonal love that we can see at the cross? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Well, let's see what kind of characteristics are there. First of all, it's initiating. God the Father took the initiative in eternity past. Billions and billions of years ago, God in omniscience knew all the knowable. Nothing has ever happened in human history that God was not fully aware of billions and billions of ages ago. He's always known everything. He's known everything simultaneously. Nothing surprises God. So God took the initiative in eternity past to provide a solution based on grace to the sin problem. And that solution would be by sending God the Son to become a human being, the uniting of undiminished deity and true humanity in one person in the hypostatic union so that he could go to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. So God's initiate, initiating activity, his initiating love, took place in eternity past. Second characteristic of his love is that it is aggressive. Satan has moved many times in human history to block the fulfillment of redemption. The classic example is in Genesis chapter 6, with the angelic infiltration when the sons of God, the, the uh, Beneha Elohim, these were the uh, demons, the fallen angels, the term sons of God always refers to angelic beings in the Old Testament, not to human beings, when these, this segment of fallen angels in, tried to infiltrate the human race to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. And the result of that was God's judgment through the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. But God's love is aggressive. He has continually moved past any attempts that Satan has made to block him. So God has always asserted himself with confidence and boldness. Because of his omniscience, he knows the entire problem. He knows every move that Satan will make, 
and he has taken and will take every step necessary in order to secure our salvation. Third characteristic is humility. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. Have this thinking in you which characterized Christ. And that thinking in context is humility. He did not think his position in the Godhead was such that he should grasp after deity. And the contrast is with Adam. You see, Satan is saying that no, humility is not the issue. Arrogance is just as viable an option. And let me demonstrate, this is the challenge he threw to God in eternity past, let me demonstrate that I can run the creation on the basis of arrogance. And God is going to show, no, it has to be run on the basis of humility, which, remember, is part of grace orientation. And in humility, we are going to exemplify the attitude of a servant. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So Jesus is going to demonstrate through, in the hypostatic union the priority of love and that this is essential to being in the kingdom of God and having an eternal relationship with God, that arrogance always fails and is self-destructive. So humility is part of love. Arrogance and pride cancels out love. Humility does not seek its own personal glory, but seeks the glory of God the Father. Remember, the issue is who is God and what has Christ done for us? That's the model. Who is God and what has Christ done for us? Because even in in spiritual maturity, we still have a sin nature and our character is at some level still flawed. So we can't say that love is based on who I am and what I do. Because if I'm out of fellowship, that's not the model. The model is always who God is and what he did through Christ. The next characteristic is intensity. It is God's love is intense. This is defined as a zealous determination to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles. Since God is omnipotent, he is able to accomplish whatever is necessary to fulfill his perfect plan for the human race. The sixth characteristic is steadfast loyalty. God is loyal to his promises to man and strongly desires all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Though not all will be saved, he has made a perfect provision to save one and all. This is the doctrine of unlimited atonement. Therefore, God does not reject and condemn man at the moment of sin or at the moment of birth when he inherits Adam's original sin and a sin nature, but God is patient and gives man a life long enough to make the decision for or against him. God is loyal to his promises and his plans. Seventh, consecration. This means to be set apart. Jesus Christ is solemnly set apart for the high purpose of being the exclusive means of salvation for the church. As such, he is loyal to God the Father motivated by personal love for God the Father, and therefore set apart to bring every believer to maturity. That's his goal. Finally, dedication. Jesus Christ is dedicated 
to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification. Dedication. Jesus Christ committed himself in eternity past to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and sanctification. Remember, man's point of contact with God is not the love of God. We have to go back to the the integrity of God and the essence of God. God is sovereign. He is perfect righteousness, absolute justice, love, and eternal life. Now, we'll just look at this side of the essence box. These three attributes, righteousness, justice, and love, make up divine integrity. The righteousness of God is the standard of God's character. The justice of God is the application of that righteous standard. And the love of God is the initiator in the character of God. Now, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So what the justice of God rejects, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. What the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. All motivated by the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. Now, when God the Father whose perfect righteousness created Adam and Eve in the garden, they had plus R. They were perfect righteousness. So God's love was free to have personal love. God was free to have personal love towards Adam and the woman in the garden. But the moment they sinned, So God's personal love could no longer be the point of contact between God and Adam and the woman. Now the issue had to shift to his righteousness. His righteousness had to be satisfied before love could be a critical part of the factor again. Here it was personal love. And now because of man's loss of righteousness... God had to deal with man on the basis of impersonal love. That means the issue is who and what he is, not who and what man is. So all of these characteristics that we have studied exemplified this impersonal love of God so that he could bring man into a relationship, solve the sin problem, and once again have personal love for man after he was saved. At the point of salvation, when you trust Christ as your Savior, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And once again, plus R can have personal love for plus R. And God always has personal love for you, whether you are carnal or spiritual, because you have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. No matter what you do, no matter what sins you commit, no matter how long you are out of fellowship, God the Father will always have personal love for you because you possess the, personal, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God's personal love for us is never based on who we are or what we do. Now let's take what we have learned about this, the impersonal love of God, the personal love of man, and let's apply it 
to marriage before we move on in our study of Galatians. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you are going to have a successful marriage as a Christian, then you must understand the concepts and precepts in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. And it's not a mistake that it follows verse 18, which is the command to be filled with the Spirit. Now, remember God established five divine institutions. Divine institutions were principles set up by God in the created order that apply to believer and unbeliever alike. They are, they are given for the preservation, protection, and perpetuation of the human race. The first is human responsibility, personal responsibility, that we are responsible for the decisions we're responsible for the decisions that we make. We are held accountable for those decisions. Whether we know their sin, whether we wanted to do it, whether we didn't whether we didn't know it was a sin, whether we were ignorant of it, whatever it is, we can't claim ignorance, we can't claim insanity. We want to do it, we made a choice to do it, and we did it. That's the issue. The second divine institution was marriage. This is for believer and unbeliever alike. The third is family. The fourth is civil government, which was established in the covenant with Noah at the end of the flood. But there were not distinct nations at that time. That does not come about until after the Tower of, of Babel, at which time God establishes the principle of nations or national Identity, as opposed to internationalism. These are the five divine institutions. Now, marriage is for believer and unbeliever alike, and that there are, and there are many unbelievers who can have happy and successful marriages. But in the New Testament, marriage is kicked up to a higher level for the believer, and we have some new principles given in Ephesians five, and God establishes Christian marriage. And Christian marriage has a unique role to play in the angelic conflict. Someday we'll get an opportunity to study all of that. Right now I'll just give you the summary on it. Christian marriage has a unique role to play as a witness in the angelic conflict because it was through marriage, the marriage of Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden, that caused the fall of the human race into sin. Marriage failed in the Garden, and it is through Christian marriage that... that on the basis of the principles outlined in God's Word for the, for the spiritual life of the church age, that a Christian husband and a Christian wife can have a specific witness together in the angelic conflict that goes beyond the individual witness of either one. So it is a whole new dynamic and a whole new level of mandates. And we see this summarized in... Ephesians 5:22 down to the end of the chapter. There's a recognition that there is an authority structure, as there always is, or a leadership structure within the marriage. Whenever you have two people together, there's always some sort of leadership structure involved, and God outlines it. In every one of the divine institutions, there's, a, there's an authority. In human responsibility, the authority is volition, your individual volition in the family, 
the authority is the parents. In human government, in civil government, the authority is the executive branch or the legislative branch, whether it's a king or president, there's always an authority. Same thing in national entity. There are always authority structures. Same thing is true in a marriage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. See, the model is not whether this guy is a winner or a loser. The issue is not whether or not this guy is worthy of it or not. It is his office. I think one of the hardest things to learn in life is respect for the office when the person in the office is not worthy of respect. And I just spent some time down in Washington, D.C., and I spent some time with some guys in the military, and I'm always impressed at how these guys are able to keep their mouths under control when they have no respect at all for the man who is the commander-in-chief, and yet they respect the office they have learned the principle. You respect the commander-in-chief because he's the commander-in-chief, not because he's worthy of it. And the same is true throughout life. You will have employers. You will have uh, people you're under in various uh, authority situations, whether it's in sports, whether it's in a job somebody you're working for, whether it's in a marriage situation, whatever it may be. You're always going to be involved at times with somebody in authority who is worthless and useless and shouldn't be there, and you have every reason in the world from a human viewpoint framework to disobey their authority because they're a rotten human being. Well, the Bible does not recognize that as legitimate at all. We always have to recognize and respect the person in authority. Now, that does not mean necessarily that we put ourselves into physical harm or physical danger or we violate commands of the Word of God. But it does mean that we have to recognize and have respect for people even though they may not be respectable. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. The issue is obedience to the Lord, not obedience necessarily to the husband. And the reason you are obedient and respectful to the husband is because of your relationship with the Lord. Nothing, wives, nothing will destroy your spiritual life more than your bad attitude towards your husband. And the opposite is just as true. First Peter tells men that if they don't have a right relationship with their wife, then their prayers aren't going to get heard. Why aren't their prayers heard? Because they've sabotaged their spiritual life because of their bad relationship with their, with their wife. So this all exemplifies what I was saying earlier, that in the New Testament, in the church age, Christian marriage has a unique role to play in the angelic conflict. And if the spiritual life of the husband or the wife is, is out of joint, it destroys that testimony. And, and if their relationship is not according to the standards of the Word of God, then it will destroy their spiritual life. Now, the wives are to be obedient to their husbands. In verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. That's the authority structure. The husband is directly under Christ. That's his authority, and that's the one to whom he's accountable. Christ also is the head of the church, so when he is out of line, the Lord's going to deal with him directly. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And we come to verse 25. Husbands, you guys are the ones who have a lot to bear, 
And too often the emphasis is on the women, but you guys need to really pay attention to what is said here in 25 to 28. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Now, we just went through several attributes which describe the kind of initiating love that Jesus Christ had. It's characterized by being, it initiates, it's aggressive, it's characterized by humility, intensity, loyalty, consecration, and dedication. And that is the kind of love that is mandated of husbands here. It is first and foremost impersonal love because if personal love is not built on impersonal love, then sooner or later personal love will crumble in the adversities of life. So it begins with impersonal love. Your wife may not want to admit it, but she is a sinner. And if you don't have impersonal love toward her, then you're going to be in trouble very soon. The same is true for you. You're a sinner and she has to have impersonal love for you, but that's not what's emphasized here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself as a substitute for her. Now that adds the element of sacrifice. Sacrificing your agenda and what you want for what's best for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water. Verse 26 and 27 describes the, the character of the sacrifice of Christ for the church. Verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Of course, you always have to remember that Paul said that he beat his body into submission. Just wanted to make sure you weren't falling asleep. Well, that's what we call a, a misuse of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So, guys, the path to self-love according to doctrine is to love your wives. And then, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So, guys, that's your pattern. That's what's been laid down an example for you of how you are to love your wives. Now, wives, if they don't do that, you don't tell them about that. That's not your job. That's the Lord's job. Then we come down to verse 33 in summation. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. So what we have here is two categories. The man is the initiator and the wife is the responder. Now what happens is that when he initiates in a wrong way, Wives, you have to watch out that you don't become a reactor and start reacting to his wrong behavior on the basis of the sin nature because then that's going to destroy your spiritual life. When he is operating wrong, your response needs to be focused 
on God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you are, you are to be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Because when this guy's out of line, if you start reacting, then you're just going to destroy your own spiritual life in the process. So he's an initiator, and she is a responder. Now, what characterizes the initiator is that he is aggressive in his love. We're going to put four characteristics up here for each one. He's aggressive. He is loyal. He is dedicated. And he is a servant. Now, the responder has respect, honor, consideration, and deference. But remember, whether you are initiating as the husband or responding as the wife, this has to be built on an understanding of grace and grace orientation. Part of grace orientation is humility. Humility involves teachability, learning, listening, talking to one another. Humility. Also, as you develop humility, you begin to develop a relaxed mental attitude. This means that whatever happens when there are slights, when there are offenses, when there is real or perceived rejection, that you don't react to that. You can maintain a relaxed focus because ultimately your focus for both the husband and the wife is on God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the model. Well, we'll wrap up our study of impersonal love there. Now, let's go back. Let's finish up Galatians 5. Go back to Galatians 5 and look at the next passage, the next verse, Galatians 5:14. Having given the mandate, the quote from Leviticus 19:18, excuse me, verse 14, then in verse 15, Paul gives a contrast. If you bite and devour one another, what is that? That is mental attitude sins given over to sins of the tongue. Slander, disrespect, gossip. You know, women can sometimes be the worst gossips about their husbands, especially when they get into a prayer meeting. Okay, well, you need to pray for my husband. And then comes the, the slider that just cuts everything out from under him. If you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed. By one another. When you give yourselves over to mental attitude sins, bitterness, bitter jealousy, hostility, anger, it destroys your spiritual life and will destroy those around you and make their life miserable. Now that concludes verse 15. Next week we'll get into verse 16 and following, which describes the contrast between the sin nature and the Holy Spirit and the distinction between walking by the Spirit and following the lusts of the flesh. This is crucial if we are going to understand the basic mechanics for the spiritual life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity. We've
had this morning to look at this crucial topic involving love and what it means to love one another and not to give in to mental attitude sins, and especially to see how this applies in the realm of Christian marriage. Father, we know that we cannot apply these things except under the filling of God the Holy Spirit because He is the uh, power of the spiritual life, and we need to learn how to walk by means of the Spirit so that He can produce this kind of love in us. This love was exemplified from eternity past by you, especially in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And now we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, if they are without hope and without eternal life, we pray that right now they would make the most important decision of their life, the decision that determines their eternal destiny and will affect the quality of life from now on on earth. All they have to do is accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, to put their trust in Him. The Bible makes it very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible said, He who believes on the Son is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so we pray that if there is anyone here that is uncertain of their salvation, that God the Holy Spirit would make the gospel clear to them and they would respond positively to that free offer. Now, Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ who died on the cross as our substitute. Amen.